I read recently that there's approximately six billion people on our planet, and it's rapidly uh, expanding. That alone is an interesting figure. But then the kind of work we do, my mind immediately jumped to, my God, that means six billion egos. most of whom are fiercely identified with some ethnic group, some religion, some sect, some country, some tribe, or just themselves. No wonder the world looks this way. Well, it's always been filled with egomaniacs. Otherwise, there would be no reason at all for spiritual teachings of any kind, and also lots of fear. Um, because we need these teachings because of issues like that. But now, of course, the stakes are higher because of uh, the brilliance of the human mind in certain directions um, has made this combination of so many people and the kinds of energy available for destructive purposes a very dangerous situation. Um, what does that have to do with little us here, tucked away in some small town? and Perhaps not a whole lot, but in some way it does. Uh, perhaps what the planet needs most of all is crying out for it. Not necessarily the whole planet has to come to Insight Meditation Society here. Uh, but for some inner understanding. Uh, the human mind has demonstrated its brilliance and tremendous energy, the kinds of things that the, we as, a, as a, a race, the human race, have accomplished, even just in our own lifetime, technologically, landing on the moon, computers now are just extraordinary, everything. And yet, uh, it's as if more and more of that will uh, take care of the main problems in life. Uh, if computers can handle even more bits of information, and are even faster and lighter, and have no wires, have nothing, you don't even have to type, just talk to them, uh, and information will become staggering in, in its availability. Uh, do you think that will make a huge difference? If the problem were information, we'd be okay a long time ago. We have loads of information. So Dharma is not adding more information, really. It's not Dharma talk is something, uh, just as you've been, uh, we've been emphasizing learning the art of receiving with the breathing. Receiving a talk, it's a little different than a lecture, say, at a university. In many ways, very, very, totally different. It's not about accumulating more information, although some of it may be interesting and point you in, in a good direction. Everything we're doing here has to do with scraping the scales off our eyes and pulling the plugs out of our ears. It's not accumulating more. Quite the opposite. It's uh, letting go of this uh, extraordinary... Um, fixation 
that we have on one aspect of what human minds can do. Think. Feel. Um, by the record that we see, the, it's, uh, it's self-evident that the human race um, is suffering from a lack of inner understanding, the gap between technological brilliance, much of it great, you know, it's helpful for us humans, and wisdom is uh, it's like Grand Canyon, and it gets greater and greater. Uh, over the years, I've seen the, the last, the challenges being, the last frontiers being the ocean, another one being up there, and now getting close to the brain, uh, the crisis is, is in consciousness, it seems. At least that's, I don't think it's too outrageous to, for that possibility to put out. It means we have six billion people who don't understand themselves too well, at least this is one possibility, who have a huge amount of self-deception, who uh, mainly are out for themselves, and are more and more through the media, witnessing how we all, each, every, we all know how we all live through TV, films, and we want what we don't have. But it doesn't seem like we want what we need, to paraphrase an old song. Uh, inner understanding. Uh, let me give you an example of uh, how this was driven home to me I mean, I had an inkling of it long before this, but while practicing in Korea, uh, there were three Americans, myself and two others there, and we, there was one extraordinary monk named Byokcho Sanim, who was illiterate. He thought the world was flat, and the three of us had a fair amount of education, and uh, we loved him, and we learned a lot from him, and he was radiant. Uh, and then when we got to that subject, we were, we were stunned. Uh, and we tried to talk him out of it. And we brought in high school science and junior high school science. Uh, he couldn't believe it. He just would laugh at us. This went on. He, he felt it could not be round. Of course it's flat. And then finally, uh, he gave up. And he said, okay, okay. What am I? I'm just an illiterate old monk who lived living most of my life up on this mountain. Uh, what do I know? You're all highly educated. But is knowing all of this, has it made you happier? Are you at peace? And that was the end of the discussion. <laughs> it's not to discount the importance of uh, uh, intellectual education, of science and technology, and all the many beautiful things that we humans are capable of. But what we've seen time and time again that uh, mastery in this realm does not produ produce human fulfillment. It simply doesn't. Wealth doesn't. Poverty doesn't either. Moving to a new place doesn't. Getting a better partner doesn't. Getting a better job doesn't. Getting a makeover doesn't. You can add to the list. Tell me what you want to add. Uh, it seems unless we understand ourselves, self-knowing, uh, self unless we develop some, we wise up, and with wisdom, genuine wisdom always includes compassion, otherwise it wouldn't be 
what I'm talking about. Um, the life that we have is disappointing again and again. It's not saying to not be successful or to not finish up your degree if that's what you're working on and all the rest. It's somehow another dimension is needed. And it's always been needed. People were um, ignorant, deluded, confused at the time of the Buddha and thousands of years before the Buddha. So this is 2,000, approximately 600 years ago. And uh, ignorance for the Buddha was the source of our suffering. Greed and hatred were, in a sense, derivative from the fundamental source, the ground out of which it came, which is ignorance. We simply do not understand correctly the Dharma. The Dharma is the way things are a natural law. And ignorant had a number of, of little, um, and not so little. One of the things we're ignorant of is we're not ignorant of the way things are. And because of it, we're ignorant of the immense potential that all of us have. Literally boundless. Um, and it's everyone has it. No one's been gypped. Can't use that word anymore. Sorry, cheated. Did you know that gypped comes from putting down gypsies because they used to? So politically incorrect in Cambridge is at such a stringent level that I was corrected. You can't say gypped. That's putting down the gypsies. Oh, excuse me. By the way, it's OK to laugh at a Dharma talk, just for our sake. Yeah. I know we've been drilling into you, you know, keep uh, averted eyes, keep serious, no talking and all that. Yeah, for the most part, but, you know, <laughs> we know you're human, you know we're human. Um, and that immense potential can only be tapped in the present moment. Michael's been pointing to that again and again during the day and last evening. The here and now dharma is, the, is what the dharma is. But uh, the way we start, we're mainly uh, tourists in now, just visiting now and then. But mainly where we live is in some imaginary future, when things are going to be fantastic or nightmarish, and some past that's uh, some way in which we reconstruct the past uh, that was either a nightmare well, that was just the good old days and fantastic, and they're over. Uh, uh, so, and yet, wh why are we always saying, be here now, the now, be in the moment, keep it simple, stick to the present? The reason we have to say it again and again is apparently we're not doing it. If we were doing it, there, uh, three quarters of the books that you read would be, wouldn't be necessary. We're not doing it. So for some reason, we prefer virtual reality that is made up in the mind, to just now, to real time rather than virtual time. Um, what I'd like to do is frame our retreat in a slightly different way. For those of you who are very new, you won't know that uh, because you're new to this perspective. Um, 
before there was such a thing as retreats or IMS or Buddhism, prior to everything is life. And there's another way, another, there are many models, these are just models, of course, but they can be very, very helpful. And that uh, life is prior to anything you want to talk about. That's what we construct something out of. Theravadan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, etc. We construct things, but life unfolds. Life is bigger than any of the notions that we have about it and will always be bigger, more challenging, and messier than any of the pictures we draw of it, verbal or otherwise. So what I'd like to suggest is that you view our practice here. We have a week together under lovely conditions, maybe not perfect, but pretty darn good. Extraordinary, wonderful food. Well, you know, I don't have to spell it out. Um, can we see that all, not so much as this is intensive practice time, and then later on we go back to daily life when we go back to wherever you came from. But rather, it's all life. And so there's a daily life right here at IMS. It's not that daily life is in Cambridge and that here we just sit and walk and do other ethereal things that have nothing to do with daily life. We do the same things here. There are toilets here, you noticed? We wash, we get dressed. Not only that, even though we don't speak and we're encouraged to you know, mind our own business, we notice each other, don't you? Haven't you noticed each other? We don't like everything we see. And it's, well, we have the strength of the Sangha. It's true. Very beautiful. All of us practicing, sort of rowing in the same direction. But it's not always true. Sometimes people in the Sangha irritate us. Okay. This perspective, uh, this is a, a Dharma perspective, is that even before we came here, the, the, the view would be life exists in order to set us free. It doesn't mean... Uh, you end your marriage, stop being a parent, drop out of graduate school, uh, uh, dissolve your business. That goes on, but uh, from a spiritual, from a dharmic point of view, life exists to set us free. Because that's what uh, the commitment to this kind of practice is. And the sole function of, of an IMS is to set us free. We're here to free ourselves. That's why we're here. And there's a daily life here. We get up in the morning, we dress, we wash. We wash, we dress, rather. I hope it's not the other way. Uh, we eat. We have jobs. Everyone here has a yogi job. I'm doing my yogi job right now. You think I got out of it? <laughs> and um, things happen. And what this is saying is that it's a very, very different set of values, attitudes, and intentions. We live our life here with the intention to understand rather than to judge. Rather than to judge. And um, I'd like to further uh, spell that out in terms of uh, a notion of self-knowing and learning how to live. I'd like to link those two uh, in the context of what we're doing here. It's a whole life here, a full life.
It's not that this is the real world is out there when I go back to the real world. Well, what is this then? What, are we living in a dream? If it is, then we're wasting our time here. This is a different kind of application of us living alive uh, where we've created, in a sense, a magnificent stage set and ground rules or staging rules uh, to enable us to maximize our ability to get to know ourselves. And the term I like is self-knowing rather than self-knowledge. Self-knowing is a verb, and it happens in the active present. It's not the accumulation of insights about yourself. Do any of you, have you squirreled away secret spiral notebooks and you're filling it in with insights? You can do that, of course. It's not a police state. We're not going to check you. Uh, but self-knowing is different. It's the clear and direct, unmediated seeing of how it is for you in a given moment. And then that's the end of it. It's not the accumulation of information at all. Uh, you can't understand the Buddha's teaching without understanding your own mind. It's simply what you would understand. There's a lot of menus. You don't understand a lot of words. The teachings, including what I'm doing right now, are pointing you in a certain direction. They're to move us along. And one of the ways they're, they're pointing to is to you. You notice you're doing the hard work. The instructions are to get you to look in the right place. Uh, friends get, sent me a birthday card a while back. Uh, I've kept it. I don't usually keep cards because it's so uh, not only hilarious. It has two rather uh, strangely dressed people. It's called the Bird Watchers. And they both have very high-powered binoculars. And one is looking in one direction up, and the other is looking the other direction up. And there's a beautiful bird standing right there. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> so we're learning to redirect our attention. Um, and this, uh, our week together gives us a wonderful opportunity to do that. It's safe. Things are slowed down. It's, it's main, this is your main job. You may, you know, have a half an hour here or whatever it is your yogi job is. But your, your main reason for being here is, can be this if you, if you allow it to be. So self-knowing is in the active present. It's a seeing. Uh, and... It can go on from the moment you wake up until you go to sleep. So we're, what we're learning is to, while we're doing other activities, to more and more develop that ability to not lose touch with ourselves, to develop, an inner, to keep, uh, de develop and learn that we can have an inner focus even in the midst of action, certainly in terms of sitting. And it's a very, very different uh, set of intentions and values and attitudes. Let me start with the sitting practice and the breath. That's all we've done so far, the official, the outward instructions. Just giving exclusive attention to the breathing. Okay. Um, and of course, many of you are new, but even those of us who are not new, uh, this is a, a radical re-education. Uh, what the 
paraphrase what the Buddha is saying is, human beings, you don't seem to know how to live. Here's some hints. And we're going to give you the tools. It's not just some wise words that we're now saying live like this. They're tools. Now, if the cutting edge is self-knowing, that is, you have to get to know yourself so that you can see how you create suffering for yourself that's unnecessary, and so that you can liberate yourself. We are, from this point of view, you don't have to agree, enslaving ourselves because we don't fully understand how the mind works, our own. And we have an opportunity to free ourselves from that psychological suffering. Moreover, we're the only ones who can do it. No matter how much other people love you or want to help, they can be a positive factor, but each one of us simply must do it. The Buddha said, Buddhas only point the way. Each one of us has to walk this path by ourselves. So we're together, we're also alone. And uh, it's a, a form of, sometimes the Buddha is likened to being a, a great physician, cures the suffering of the world, but he's also called a great teacher. And I would say uh, they're both very, very useful ways to see it. A great educator, one of the greatest educators. Because what I, the way I, it's always, it's come down to me and it has made it so alive for me in about 30 years now, it's still alive, is that it has to do with learning. We're learning how to live. That takes a certain humility because that means we have to admit we don't know how to live. That there's something to be learned. Self-knowing, how can you learn about yourself if you feel you've got yourself down, you've got it all worked out? Humility, a genuine humility, is one prerequisite for self-understanding. Openness. Okay, um, how can you do that? Well, first of all, you have to equip the mind, otherwise it becomes a very idealistic, romantic um, notion about we're all here to get free, but as soon as we sit down, the mind is so wild. Now let's deal with that one because that's the beginnings of a, of a, a radically new attitude that is necessary to learn. Uh, learn and unlearn. A lot of what goes on in Dharma practices, we're unlearning what doesn't work. It's, un, it's simply not skillful. And we've got to see it often again and again and again until our consciousness is transported into the suffering to the degree to which we really get it, that fire burns. And something that we've been doing, whatever it is, that has been hurting us for years, we finally, we've seen it and known it but couldn't change it. Finally, something in, our, in us is mobilized. Okay, but another prerequisite is to have a steady and clear mind. How can you get to know yourself if the mind's all over the place? What you'll have is lots of thoughts about yourself. But that's not self-knowing. Something you, that requires the art of pure observation, just the ability to really look and listen and attend and learn. So, uh, I understand from the group that uh, many of you, and this is not surprising for all of us, we all know this, those who have been practicing for a while, uh, even a long while, uh, sleepiness and restlessness and uh, the mind leaving the breath again and again and again and discouragement. Um, Typically, what we bring to the practice from the outside is, first of all, we do not bring a simple mind, a simple, calm, clear mind. 
what's going on out, outside here does not contribute to that. Okay. Um, and then we hear the instructions. Follow the breath. If the mind wanders, gently bring it back. Allow the breathing to just be as it is, and so forth. And then we find that not only can't we find the breath, we can't find our nostrils. And uh, we spend most of our time in the same places we, we've been living in before we came here. Just uh, getting out of your car and dropping your bags and unpacking, we, wherever we go, there we are again. We're here. Buckaroo Banzai said that in the film. You think John Kabat-Zinn said it. Buckaroo Banzai had it first. Okay. So the mind is wild, and then what happens is we become very determined. Uh, what is it that we're, we're determined to do? Well, we're determined to tame it. And there it goes, it's off again. And then it's off again. And then I feel sleepy and drowsy, and there it's off again, then I get angry. Uh, and all the hindrances start coming up. Okay, there's a striving there that's uh, unavoidable and obvious. There's a goal. Uh, we're, we're, we're approaching it in the same way we approach so many other things. Degrees, money, positions, you name it. Acquisitive. I'm not saying that in a derogatory sense. Just descriptive. We, we set uh, something that's not here ahead of us. And we say, if you do this, you'll get that. And we will do all kinds of things in the present for that future promise of getting something in the future. Okay. And that works in some realms and, and, and I think is even essential to learn certain skills. It takes time and so forth. Here, that's not going to work. It's going backwards. In fact, in one Tibetan model of, a con of, of the ways in which the mind gets concentrated, they'll call what we experience as that wildness of mind. We see just how busy the mind is, how much vexation, turbulence. They call that attain an attainment, attaining the cascading mind. Uh, an attainment sounds good. Isn't that what we want? We want to attain a lot. More this, more that. Getting is good. Uh, well, what kind of attainment is it? Well, what we've attained is we've seen truly the nature of our mind. We've seen to begin with, it is wild. It's not a put-down, it's an observation. It's inescapable. I don't know anyone who skipped that step. There may be, I just have not met them. But then there's a, a fork in the road. Now that you've seen how wild the mind is, you can use that to be one of those who just makes yourself feel worse and worse using the same way of living that has proven to be not so uh, helpful that probably brought you here to try to we repeat the same way in which we learn things and do things only on this. And so then we're down on ourselves and then come to an interview and then Michael and I will tell you, don't be down on yourself, it's okay. And, well, and you, then we, we feel better, puffed up, and then next sitting it starts in again. Uh, so it's a re-education and it's asking, it's asking to say, uh, it's not about judging yourself that way or attaining, it's about understanding. And as uh, the two forks in the road is one, you can quit. We can just try even harder and just make matters worse. 
The other is, oh, wow, I didn't know my mind was like this. And I, there was a, a brain surgeon, a prominent one in Boston. His mind is like this. So, of course, you know, don't be embarrassed. Now, he was humiliated. It's not an occasion for humiliation. It's just a piece of truth. When we look inside, uh, we're primitive. We've not done much work inside. That's why, we, that's why this practice exists. That's why psychotherapies exist and so forth. We've not done a whole lot of work inside. Okay, so once you say, wow, oh, I didn't know that, it's not over, you realize there's help. You're not helpless. There are techniques and methods and support that's been going on for thousands of years. And there's nothing mysterious about it. If you keep practicing, coming back to the breath gently, little by little, we're trying to re-educate the mind, not break its spirit. It may be wild to begin with, but little by little it can actually learn to enjoy becoming absorbed in the breath. We start to, it's a strange discovery, which we, I don't think, would have made on our own. So even this self-knowing, we need help. The Buddhist teachings can be a big help, but it'll be tested. We discover, my goodness, just simply being with the breath, with some continuity, maybe four or five minutes, and I feel wonderful. I feel at peace. I feel a certain joy, and I feel uh, a little bit more love. And then when I go back to coulda, shoulda, woulda, he, he said, she said, they said, uh, I feel miserable. Same old patterns again and again and again. I want, I don't want, I used to be, I am, I will be. Uh, a little, it's wild because we're not too sharp, us humans. Although we certainly think we are. It takes a while, maybe we get it. I see this repeating the same fruitless patterns in the mind over and over and over squanders an enormous amount of energy, and for the most part, it's not even fulfilling. It's not, if you have a good mind, by all means, don't throw that out. Use it when it's appropriate. There are all kinds of ways in which it's appropriate, but not for self-knowing, except self-knowing is seeing that, seeing that and softening it. Uh, you've learned something. If you can get some joy from the learning, uh, that's an accomplishment. Okay, now, so it's, uh, what I'm suggesting is uh, an approach where there's no divorce between what we call practice and life. That is, everything we do here is practice. And everything we do here is life. It may be a, con uh, it's a conventional way of talking, I understand, about the real world and so forth. Uh, but sometimes I feel that what, what happens is, especially since, especially if you come to love to sit, is that you come to love to sit at the expense of the rest of your life. Remember, we're lay people. We do work. We do have relationships, or we want to get in them, or we want to get out of them. If you're in them, you want to get out of them. If you're out of them, you want to get in them. <laughs> we need to make money. We eat three meals a day and more. We do get married. We do, make, we do uh, have sex and make love. We do all the things that the monks and do, nuns don't do. And that's great for them. We have a very different life. 
we have to, we need a, a practice that honors how we actually live. And we need to learn how to use that energy. The suffering's not in money, nor sex, nor marriage, nor work. It's in that we don't know how to use those energies, or food. They're all beautiful things, potentially necessary. They're part of living. Okay, let's start. I'm going to use a success story. I need a testimonial here for what I'm saying. Um, if we can, let's say I'm going to go to Yogi Jobs. But every step along the way, throughout the day, if you can uh, learn from what happens to you, uh, see that you don't like a person because their socks don't match, or, uh, or you fall in love with a person who you have never spoken to in your life and can't wait for the end of the retreat, or not even wait. Sometimes we find ways of flirting or getting something going. You even have a term here, Vipassana romance. I don't know if one ever worked. Does anyone, do they work ever? Mostly they don't, because then the retreat ends, and it's the person who are who they are, not who you think they are, because out of your anything to get away from the breath. <laughs> okay. 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 Work. Let's take, so it's all an occasion for learning. Just, uh, it's a very rich environment. When the time comes to sit, give it your best. That's what we, what we do. We do mostly that here. And walking almost as much. When it comes time, do that. It's the reverse at home. At home, we do a lot of more talking, relationship, work, family, etc. And we get as much sitting as we can. Maybe we can get away for a retreat once or twice a year. So now the priorities are reversed, but life goes on. And if you can see that as real life, when you leave here, it's not going to be some abrupt shock. Because we have a nice opportunity to practice um, living in an ordinary sense, giving full attention to such ordinary things like dressing, like eating, like washing. How do you do it? How do we do it? Learn, how do I, how do I wash? How do I dress? What's my relationship to food? What food seems to... Uh, render the mind more dull, what foods seem to get it agitated, what foods seem to be very nice for meditation. So the, it's uh, a very, very rich environment. Yogi job. Um, the tradition here used to be you'd come, I think it still is. In fact, I don't know if on this retreat, because uh, I, I forgot to remind the office that on these retreats, uh, people don't have a choice. It used to be you turn up and pick, up what, pick out whatever job you want. And people would come hours in advance. <laughs> so they get, there used to be a library where the office is. And they would get a job dusting the library, you know. Uh, fine, first come, first serve. Then the people who come in late, pots and, you know, and all the rest of it. Okay. Um, for, uh, that is, uh, of course, that's part of life too, but uh, uh, a way of working with work, in, in, in Japanese then it's called samu, which means work practice. It's not just work. We're not just learning how to be busy bees. We're learning how to use work to be good at it, to be effective. Not sloppy, efficient. Whatever the kitchen wants you to do, you'd be better at it. 
whatever you're asked to do in whatever job, vacuuming, sweeping, I don't know, whatever your job is. But it's more than that. We have, in a sense, two jobs. One is the task itself, and the other is uh, learning about ourselves. Okay? They really are, can be the same thing. Um, I'm going to give you a quote from Dogen, and then I'm going to get to an oral surgeon who uh, is my testimonial. Came here some years ago. Dogen says, um, to study the Buddha way or Buddha Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, to study Buddha Dharma is to study yourself. To study yourself is to forget yourself. To forget yourself is to be awakened or enlightened by all things. Okay. To study the self. Okay. Uh, to study the B Buddha Dharma is to study the self. I was to study the Buddhist teaching and study the self. I'm going to, I hope, uh, suggest that to study the toilet is to study the self. To study a cup of tea is to study the self. To study lacing your boots is the study of the self. Because selfing, that tendency for me to jump in there and take credit for what it's doing or not, judge itself, uh, is unlimited. As one of my friends put it, the ego can never have enough of itself. Have you noticed? I thought that was funny. And when he said it, I laughed. <laughs> I guess he's not as funny as me. In fact, he's sitting right here. No. <laughs> no, it's not you. <laughs> Matthew Danielle, who's going to help Michael and I, is going to. Uh, uh, I found it true. The, uh, just never, t never tired of how it can't have enough of itself. Okay. So this gentleman turns up, and the, the, um, the, the guidelines, which I got in, in Asia, which I found very, very helpful, uh, because I, was, I had to do jobs that I didn't want to do. The guidelines were, you get whatever job uh, is next, and unless there's a medical reason, of course. So this uh, gentleman, an oral surgeon, very nice person, shows up, and what does he get? the toilets. And he refuses. He says, no, I didn't come here to do the toilet. This actually happened. So I don't know anything about this. And the office is negotiating with him and trying to get him to, you will do the toilets, you won't do the toilets. <laughs> you know, okay. uh, this teacher insists that you um, blah, blah. And he says, I don't care. Uh, I came here to learn how to meditate, uh, etc." Finally, they threw up their hands, and they sent him to me. <laughs> so he comes in, uh, a highly articulate, um, presentable, lovely man. And I said, um, hey, look, it's simple. I'm not going to do the toilets. And I said, well, uh, but you see, that's part of the practice, is to take whatever job you get. And he said, I'm an oral surgeon. I'm not just a dentist. I've gone beyond that. I'm an oral surgeon. And you're asking me to clean the toilets. And I said, I am. And I said, it sounds like this, it's getting more valuable for you by the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the meter is running. Uh, I thought it was useful. Now it's precious. You know. Okay. Uh, and, and we went back and forth. And I said, um, and I, inside, I have to admit, I had the Temptation, I was wavering inside. I didn't let him see it. I felt like I don't want to ask the guy to go home over just the, his yogi job. But I felt I have to do it. We have to do it. Everyone else is doing it here. So I said, you either have to do it. I, and I said it in as nice a way as I knew how to say it. 
You either have to do that, uh, uh, cl uh, help clean the toilets, or I'm afraid you can't participate in the retreat. And he, he just couldn't believe that. I said, I really mean it. You'll have to go home. We'll give you a complete refund. At any rate, he stalked out. And I didn't know how it would turn out. And he was ready to go home, and he wasn't ready to go home. He fought with himself. He struggled. And he was pacing outside. People told me this. I, <laughs> uh, finally, he did it. And he spent the retreat doing it. At the end of the retreat, here's why I selected him, because it's one of the few successes we've had. <laughs> okay. At the end of the retreat, uh, we had a long exchange. The retreat was over, and he just knocked on the door, came in. And I, as I said, he was a perfectly uh, lovely person. And we went through it. And what came out of it was, look, I had very low self-esteem. And uh, that's why I became a dentist. And then even being a dentist wasn't enough. I had to become an oral surgeon. I said, well, what next? You know, where does it go from here? What's the next one in your profession? Uh, and he said, it's a, it was a matter of, it felt very threatening to my image. I didn't even know I had an image. I didn't know that it was that brittle. And I was furious with that. It pushed that button. I said, but once I started to see it, and little by little, just did what you do to clean a toilet. Certain operations. You take a, a cleaning utensil and you go like this and put some this and then, and, then you, and then you're done. It's a simple human activity, a necessary one, and that's it. But look what your mind made out of it. Okay, so uh, if you have a yogi job that you don't like, wonderful. But only if you relate to it in, in, uh, in this new way, in, in this way, which is uh, a dharma aphorism, a bad situation is a good situation. People are not going to probably tell you that, where you, where you came from. So it's a kind of strange place that you arrived at. Uh, and we're, we're learning how to learn from our life. And learning how to live and self-knowing, uh, for me, are the same thing. Um, my first Vipassana teacher, Anagrika Munindraji, um, I guess he used to ask, because he did it not just to myself, why do you want to study Vipassana uh, meditation? And I said, well, I want to get to know myself. And he said, good, sit down and take a look. Uh, absolutely true. You can learn a tremendous amount for yourself on the cushion, because it's such a dramatically simplified situation. And you have nothing else to do, and that's, of course, why it's hard. Most of the escapes are taken away. We, we're ingenious, you know, but uh, we try to take them away. And then you're left with what? Just you, you and you. But I would say, he, he wouldn't disagree with this, but it's, it, the learning doesn't end when you get up from the cushion. And that's what I mean by to study uh, the Buddha Dharma is to, is to study the self. To study the toilet is to study the self. Uh, whatever it is, uh, life is uh, stimulating and it's producing reactions in us, and it's a mirror, a mirror teaching us about ourselves. And there's a lot that can be learned just from living. Nothing special. It's not necessarily what we want to learn, because when you take a look as to how you actually live, not how you think you live or how you imagine you live, how you actually live, sometimes. You have to swallow hard. A lot of self-images that are simply, they're just images. No image is you. 
they, they are broken into a thousand pieces when you see how you actually live because the, the reality doesn't match the fantasy, the notion. So what I'm suggesting is whatever it is you're doing, whatever your job, it doesn't matter. And here people get into, maybe not so much anymore, uh, bad job, good job, easy job, hard job, time-consuming job, quick job. And the attitude can become, let me get this over with so I can do what I really want to do, get back into the real meditation. Uh, and I don't mean for you to try this, but at least for some of us, after practicing for a while, it becomes rather different. Uh, one of the refuges is taking refuge in the Sangha, the community of practitioners, us. We're a temporary one here for seven, maybe every Sangha is temporary. You know, wherever you are. All of us are in it together. We're all trying to do, we're part of a culture of mindfulness. Got that from another friend, Michael. You laughed at Michael, <laughs> and that wasn't supposed to be fun. Well, a little bit funny. Um, would someone help me out? Yeah, a little before the, the early stage of senility is starting to set. What? <laughs> what? Yes, thank you. Isn't that what we do around here? Yeah. Thank you. Um, there's potentially, if you allow it to happen, great strength when you realize that all of us are practicing together. Everyone is doing the yogi job, people cooking, cleaning. The whole, all of us are yogis. I, I didn't mean it just to be clever. We all have yogi jobs. Whatever we do, the practice is intended to be part of that doing. And so when you clean a toilet or uh, scrub a pot or whatever it is you, you're doing, you can have a feeling of um, serving, that all of us are helping this retreat happen. In that sense, we're making it possible for one another. When you protect the silence, you protect something that everyone can benefit from. It's very fragile, silence, and so forth. Uh, the retreat becomes one where whatever it is you're doing at that moment, that's the most important aspect of practice there is. And when it's over, it's over. And then you move on to what's next. You exhale what's gone so there's room to inhale what's next, whatever that next is. And that's the most important practice that you could be doing. So that's the attitude that we'd like to encourage. We're all going to be attempting to give it our best to do that. Uh, if you practice wholeheartedly, you have seven days uh, to give yourself over uh, to this and uh, test it. Find out if this is a, not a bad way to live, because if it is, then, then you can bring it home. Admittedly, different challenges home, but you'll see that there's just life. And this particular invention of going away for a while, of dropping our responsibilities, at least outwardly, is a wonderful thing to do, unless you make it stand for the whole trip, you make it stand for the whole thing, uh, then I'm afraid you'll be in for a disappointment. Because most of us, pr probably all of us, spend most of our life not on the cushion or in silence. We spend it with people, doing things, and so forth. Okay. Could we have a few moments of silence, please?
May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.